Welcome to the 410th episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with Katherine Sherbrooke, author of the new novel, Leaving Coy's Hill. Stay tuned for the interview. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro FM. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Catherine Sherbrooke, author of the new novel, Leaving Coy's Hill. Catherine, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Sure. If someone hasn't heard about your new novel yet, how would you describe Leaving Coy's Hill? So Leaving Coy's Hill is historical fiction. And it's based on the real life of Lucy Stone, who was an abolitionist and pioneering feminist in the 1800s. She was actually the person who inspired Susan B. Anthony to join the movement. And they were really close friends and allies until they had a significant falling out, which is one of the things I wanted to explore in the book. The other storyline in the book is that Lucy Stone, as a pioneering feminist, developed a career trying to change marriage law, because at the time, as soon as a woman was married, she lost all rights to her property, income, everything. But she is approached by a dashing young man who proposes a marriage of equals and suggests that wouldn't she be a better model for feminism if she could show the world that she could be married and be independent at the same time, which is a really revolutionary and really interesting idea to Lucy, but the fact remains that if she gets married, she still legally loses her independence. So the book also explores that conundrum and what she decides to do. And so that romance that you just described or the proposal by this potential husband, is that based on historical records? Yeah. So every major event in the book All the key plot points are things that actually happened. It's fictional because I tell the story from Lucy's point of view. So I really wanted to understand what it would be like to stand in her shoes. I had to make up the dialogue. 
I have all sorts of fact points in her life, but as we all know, there's a lot that happens in between those fact points that I had to invent, including her intentions and her dreams and her fears and how she feels about certain things. So the, the fiction part allowed me to explore those things, but I do stay very close to the actual facts of her life. Sure. Do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write Leaving Coy's Hill? Yeah, so I was actually um, working on a different project and researching names for secondary characters. And I was looking for strong women in history who were little known. Don't exactly remember what I Googled, but up came Lucy Stone. And I started reading about this woman who was the first woman from Massachusetts to get a college degree, the first woman to speak out for women's rights, all these incredible firsts. And yet, I had never heard of her. And I found that shocking. And so I really wanted to understand why that is. And part of that, a great part of that is because of the falling out that she had with Susan B. Anthony. And Susan B. Anthony kind of owned the narrative of the women's movement, quite literally. She and Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote the book called The History of Women's Suffrage, and they purposely left Lucy out. So I found that really intriguing and began reading as much as I could about her and was quickly obsessed and switched projects altogether. <laughs> and and what was that research process like for you? Is a, is a, I know that you said that all of the major fact points are historically researched, but I'm curious, is a lot of the, for example, the falling out that you've mentioned between Lucy and Susan B. Anthony, is that are there sources for that? Yeah, there are. So fortunately, there have been a couple of biographies written about Lucy, more kind of academic biographies as I think of them. So I was able to get my hands around some of the basic facts, which was really helpful. The most important primary research, though, was I was able to read troves and troves of letters, both between Lucy and her closest friend, also her colleagues like Susan B. Anthony, and also letters between her and her suitor. So that was hugely valuable to internalize her voice and understand more about what she was thinking and feeling. And then this falling out has actually, with Susan B. Anthony, has actually, the academics, and, and especially given that last year was the 100th anniversary of suffrage and people are spending a little more time looking into the multiple people who had an impact on that, more of this sort of the dark underbelly of the women's movement is coming to light, as I call it. And it's really relevant to our racial reckoning that we've been going through because it was about the, the controversy of giving Black men the vote in the 15th Amendment before women. And women and had long been fighting for abolition and universal suffrage. So suffrage for everybody. And this idea that black men were now going to be prioritized over women in this is the end of the 1860s caused quite a rift in the women's movement. And that's what that falling out was about. Sure. Can you explain Lucy's relic speech and its significance? Sure. So Seneca Falls in 1948 is also often considered the first women's convention, but the first truly national convention that drew people from multiple states and and was really well advertised was a convention in Worcester in 
1850 that Lucy Stone was key to organizing. And the speech that she made at the end of that convention, she talks about an experience where she was in a graveyard and all the gravestones referred to the men with some sense of who they were, the beloved fireman or the town doctor, and all the women were just wife of Bill, wife of Joe. And so she made this very impassioned um, speech. She was a master orator. It's really where she got her fame. And she made this speech that women shouldn't just be some man's relic. And that's what she meant by that. And that's the speech that caught Susan B. Anthony's eye and made her think that she should really maybe turn more of her attention to the cause of women. Sure. So what was your writing journey that led you to writing and getting your first novel published? Yeah, it's always such a long uh, journey. As As a kid and my whole life, books have always been hugely central. Always loved books. Always wanted to be a writer. I think what's tricky about any of the arts is when you get out of college, it's it's hard to find a paying job that, <laughs> that lets you practice that art. Who's going to just let you be an apprentice? Clarinet? I can relate to that. Exactly. <laughs> so I ended up in a job in um, publishing at a magazine called Inc. Magazine, which is all about entrepreneurs. And I caught the entrepreneurial bug and took this huge left turn into <laughs> business and founded a company and found that my years of practicing writing came in really helpful in business. And so I rationalized that, oh, this is what I meant to do and forgot. And then after I sold my company, I thought I was between startups and I decided to tackle a project, which was really getting down on paper. My parents' love story, because they have this fabulous, classic, turbulent love affair. And we had just lost my mother to Alzheimer's. And so I I suddenly realized that now is the time to get all the stories from my father while I could and put it together as a family memoir that I could give him. And that was really just a personal project. I didn't intend to market it, but that process reminded me how much I just love storytelling and writing. And I love the process of writing that book. And so I thought after I finished that, which became my first book called um, Finding Home, I decided that I sh- really owed it to myself to give fiction writing a shot, which had always been my ultimate dream, this idea of writing a novel. I started that process and in huge part because I found an organization called Grub Street in Boston, which is now one of the largest creative writing centers in the US, but was luckily I could get there on a regular basis. Not that you have to show up in person anymore, as we all know. (laughs) And I signed up for a class called Novel in Progress. And the first the first class, everyone was supposed to show up with five pages of their novel. So I figured I better have five pages of my novel. <laughs> and through that class, and a bunch of us stayed together and wrote our first novels together, which was a long and arduous and difficult process. But that first novel um, called Fill the Sky came out about five years later. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. 
Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. And now this is my second and so what was that class experience like for you? Did you stay in contact with, with those fellow students? Yeah, very much. So those classes are supposed to be 10 weeks in length. And we all signed up together, I think, four times in a row with the same instructor so that we could keep writing our books. And two of the women in that class, I'm still in a writing group with. We meet religiously every month more when we need to read each other's work. It was a really wonderful way to to get some feedback on my own writing, which is or can be a really difficult and painful part of the process, but I think essential. I'm personally a believer that it's really difficult to evaluate our own work and we need the eyes of others and the sort of wisdom and encouragement also of others. Grub Street has been instrumental to me in that way and continues to be. That's great. So what was your writing process when you were working on leaving Coy's Hill, given what you've described as the historical backdrop of the novel? Did you have to plot it extensively? Yeah. What I did was, as I mentioned, did read everything about Lucy and got my hands on as much background information as I could And I literally put up on a wall in my office all the key events in her life that I thought were either interesting turning points or might make a good scene. I had another section of that wall that kept track of kind of what was going on in the country at the time, because obviously civil war, post-civil war, abolition, emancipation, there was a lot going on that was hugely relevant. And then I had to step back and literally look at the wall and figure out what were the themes, what was the story that I really wanted to tell. Because this Lucy Stone story could be told, 10 different writers would tell it in 10 different ways. And I decided that those two storylines, which I, I mentioned, were the ones that were really of interest to me. And so then it was going through and figuring out, okay, which scenes were relevant 
not only in super obvious ways, like obviously the romance there, you have to show when they meet, but beyond that, what parts of Lucy's character was it really important that I developed to make those storylines really rich and then find moments, whether it was in her childhood or her college years or her time lecturing on the road that were really good examples or let me bring to life the part of her character that I thought it was really important to show. And there was so much I had to leave out. Um, (laughs) There are just so many fabulous scenes that just didn't do the work I needed them to do. That's, I think, that's really true with any book, a lot of ways. Given your experience thus far with these novels, what writing advice would you offer for those who are working on their own stories or novels? Yeah, so there there are two key things I would say. One for me, and obviously every writer writes differently, but the one thing that took me a long time to allow myself to do is just to write forward, write with momentum and worry about revision later. You know, the in, in my experience, the first draft is 40% of the work and most of it comes in revision. And with my first novel, I really took pains to polish every chapter, polish every paragraph as I was going along, wanting to really questioning, is this the right line? Is this the right way to say it? And not only does that take a much longer time, inevitably, and I hate to say this for anyone writing their novel for the first time, inevitably, you're going to throw a lot of it out. I now give myself permission to just write and literally if I don't, and not stop. And if I don't know something, like, and she made a new friend named, I'll just put friend's name and keep writing. And, and, or even if I say, I think something dramatic needs to happen here, but I'm not sure what next, but I know what the next scene is. Just keep going because it's a lot easier, I think, to then finally have some sense of the whole project once you write all the way through to then know where you really want to focus. So that's my first piece of advice. The other one I would say, which is really hard for me, but I, and I think it's a mistake a lot of first-time writers make, is take, you have a very long time to get out all the backstory to the reader. People can have this sense that, oh, the story's not going to mean anything if they don't know these nine things about my character that happened in the past. And then they try and open their book that way. And that's the quickest way that books get turned down when you get to the point of looking for an agent and an editor. And I would encourage people to look at their favorite books or even their favorite TV shows and realize how often you are dropped in the middle of a scene. And when writers do a really good job with characterization, you see the tension, you see the character ticks, you see the things that make them different. And it makes you curious to know why. So by the time you get to the backstory, it's meaningful. If you do it too soon, it just feels like an info dump. So that's not to say that you shouldn't write the backstory. I spend a lot of time writing the backstory and often have to feel for me that I want to, if I start a story with a character who's 30, I want to know everything about their entire life up to that point, but probably most of it isn't going in the book. So those are the two things I would say. That's great. Are you working on a new novel now? I am working on a new novel. It is hesitant to say too much about it, but sure. I will tell you that it has two time frames. One is the the golden age of Hollywood, so 1940s Hollywood, and the other is 1970s New York centered around Broadway. So interesting. It's, 
yeah, two different time frames and and how they intersect and and impact each other. That's great. What novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? Yeah, there's so many. On the nonfiction side, I will say that I haven't finished it yet, but I'm reading George Saunders' craft novel called The Swim in a Pond in the Rain, which is spectacular. For anyone writing it, I highly rec- anyone writing, I highly recommend it. I was a little intimidated by him. He wrote Lincoln and the Bardo, and right. so I was thinking it would be just way beyond what I could comprehend. But his his advice and his way of writing is incredibly practical. So that's great. And then on fiction, I I read a lot of historical fiction, as you can imagine. I recently read Sue Monk Kids, The Book of Longing, which is just incredible. She's a master. It's a good lesson that we can write whatever we want. She basically fictionalizes the life of Jesus. So you figure if you can do that well, (laughs) anything is game in the world of historical fiction. It's a beautiful book. That's great. Have you made the shift now to novelist from entrepreneur? That's a very good question. It took took a really long time for me to call myself a writer. I now do squarely call myself a writer. That said, developing a writing career is an entrepreneurial event on its own. You get to the, the part where you're trying to sell your work first to agents and editors and then to um, the public, obviously. And so my business skills, I think, do help me there. But I'm happy to say I do now consider myself a writer. It's the thing that I love more than anything. So I, I hope I can keep doing it. That's great. Where can people find you online if they want to learn more about you and your novels? I have an author website. It's kasherbrook.com. And that's Sherbrook with an S-H-E-R. B-R-O-O-K-E on the end there. So you can find out about my other books and I have kits for book groups and so forth. So there's lots of info there. That's great. Again, we've been speaking with Catherine Sherbrooke, author of the new novel, Leaving Coy's Hill. The novel is on sale now. So go buy a copy. And Catherine, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. Now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of Leaving Coy's Hill by Catherine Sherbrooke, narrated by Elizabeth Wiley, published by Dreamscape Media, and available wherever audiobooks are sold. Chicago World's Fair, 1893. It has been years since I last spoke in front of such a large crowd. I remove my notes from the credenza, the pages fluttering in my hand, It's not nervousness that makes my hands tremble, but rather a familiar excitement. A chance to inspire a crowd of young people is a gift for an old woman like me. Alice rushes about our rooms, collecting my hat and coat, seeing to everything I need. I haven't told her that the pain in my abdomen is almost unbearable this morning, that I fear I might never recover my full energy again, There's no use worrying her when we are so far from home with little to be done about it. But it makes today's announcement all the more important. I should have promoted her to editor-in-chief of the Women's Journal months ago. The rigor of the job has been too much for me for some time, and she has certainly proven herself. At 36, 
She's a smart and capable woman, a persuasive writer, thoughtful in her assessments and never hesitant to share a well-considered opinion. She's never had to bend her beliefs to please a husband. Not that she ever would. I was the same at that age. My convictions were all I had. I can already picture her delight when she hears the news, how her hand will fly up to her mouth to cover the toothy grin she's never liked, how the tears will stream from her eyes. I can hear the enthusiastic applause of the audience and envision the nodding heads of thousands of subscribers across the country when they read of the change. They know our reliable assistant editor is more than ready to take the helm from me. I've dared to imagine this day for years, and I can't deny an overwhelming sense of pride that it has finally arrived. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.